Meekness. We're talking about meekness today. This is a, a trait in the Bible. It comes up a couple of times. Uh, we're going to talk primarily, of course, about Jesus, but also a little bit about Moses. Because, uh, of course, we're thinking about any trait of the Bible. One of the things to look out for is who was the most of that particular trait. We think about wisdom, of course. Who's the most wise? That would be Solomon. Meekness is Moses. Numbers 12.3. The man Moses was very meek more than all the people on the face of the earth. Now, it doesn't say he's the meekest man who ever lived, but all the people of the earth at the time, Moses is the meekest. Of course, Jesus says, blessed are the meek in Matthew 5, 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus says it again, and this is where translation becomes difficult. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Now this word underlined gentle. Same word in Matthew 5, 5, meek. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Moses, he's super meek. We love Moses. He's a great guy. Jesus, he comes. Blessed are the meek, contrasted with, well, we'll talk about the contrast in a minute. And then Jesus says, I'm meek. That's why you should come to me, because I'm meek and gentle and lowly. And so the meaning of the word meek is a little bit hard to narrow down. We don't use it a bunch in our English context. I don't know. When was the last time you used the word meek in a, in a non religious context, I suspect not very often, we typically think about it as maybe this combination, some sort of combination of humble and gentle, not a terrible definition, but if we aren't careful, and here's really what I want to drive home today, if we're not careful, we conflate meekness with weakness. They are not the same thing. This is an important distinction as we think about this encounter in the garden. This is going to show us what meekness is as Jesus is confronted by Judas and the soldiers, and of course, how meekness triumphs over temptation. Of course, last week in the garden, we really honed in on the temptation of Jesus, the temptation to give up, right? The sorrow, the, the tragedy of his prayer in the garden. Now we're, we're focusing on the triumph where he has chosen to do God's will. And so as we think about this, we're, we're in, in, the, uh, in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 18. Again, I will not be reading all those references every time. You can see them on there. As we are thinking about, I, I want to emphasize again the difference between what we call the synoptic gospels. That would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John, they're called the synoptic gospels because they sort of go together. John, very different. And here again, we see a much different account between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, Pharisees and scribes and elders of the people. Now, if you put them all together, as we've done, there's quite a few groups involved here. We have... Officers, chief priests, Pharisees, scribes, elders. Now, not all the gospel writers record all of those things, but you'd put them together. This is a concerted effort on the part of the Jewish leadership, right? They came with a great crowd with lanterns and swords and clubs. The betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, the whole business with the sign. I'll, I'll give him a kiss. Or they, of course, they have lanterns. It's dark. They don't want to arrest the wrong man. I don't know. The whole thing seems a little contrived to me. It's not like they don't know what Jesus looks like. He's been there the whole time. But again, maybe they're making sure. I don't know. It's worth again noting the difference between John and the other Gospels. And, and I want to make this clear. It's not that any of the Gospels are wrong, but John is emphasizing different aspects of the story. And it's particularly relevant in regards to our idea of meekness. John's account gives us a, a better picture 
of meekness in the garden. Now, second question. They have a great crowd. Why do they need so many people to capture this one dude, right? This is one guy. Now, I don't know, maybe they're thinking he's going to have a crowd with him. He often had crowds with him. Of course, he knows Judas. We read this last week. Judas knows he often goes to this place. He withdraws to pray. There's never been any indication until now that there will be armed combat. Like the, the disciples have never exhibited, well, one of them, I guess, the zealot. But the, most of the disciples have never exhibited any particularly violent streaks. Uh, now, in several of the Gospels, there's an, uh, a, a side note earlier in the story that they have gathered. They have a couple of swords up until this point. Why so many people? Now, up until this point, remember, Jesus has been confronted several times and he's escaped. A couple of times he seems to, it's just, it, it's hard to get away from it in the text. He just seems to teleport a couple of times out of the grasp of the different people that want to get him. So maybe they're thinking, okay, enough's enough. We're getting a good crowd. We're going to go get this guy once and for all. That really themes have come to a head. And so Judas comes and he is going to have this sort of sign for the people. This is who you're going to grab. And, and maybe they're thinking, of course, if Judas goes first, then we won't scare him away. We won't scare Jesus away if they see just us coming. Of course, that's defeated the point. They come with this giant crowd. It's not like Jesus doesn't know. Oh, well, this is the time. I guess I better stick around. But it's the whole thing is a little weird to me. As we keep reading, he came near to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. He, would, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Of course, the implied answer or the impl implication of the, the question, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? Now, of course, Jesus knows. Judas kissed him and Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. There are three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, really make sure the reader knows that Jesus is not taken by surprise. He knows what is coming. He knows what's going to happen to him. John has been saying that for the last five chapters, beginning in chapter 13. Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, right? There's a lot of emphasis. And Luke here, he really records this interruption. Judas comes forward to kiss him and Jesus has this interruption. Again, emphasizing Jesus' foreknowledge. He knows what's happening. This is not taking him by surprise. The foreknowledge is an important part of meekness in the story. As we think about what meekness is in the life of Jesus, meekness is not inability or weakness or insufficiency. It's not a lack of something. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He un is understanding of what's taking place. It's not like he didn't know or was taken by surprise. There is a deliberate choice in meekness. It doesn't imply the inability to affect change. That's weakness, right? And this is where we have to really make this distinction. Humility, gentleness, meekness, they're not the same as weakness. Weakness implies that you can't affect the outcome. That you have no ability to direct what happens in your life. That's not the point. The point is we have the ability to direct the outcome. We have the ability to, uh, to influence events, but we choose not to. Moses was not particularly unable. We think about Moses. He spoke to God face to face. He demonstrated great miraculous power through God's help. Of course, Jesus is the son of God. Moses and Jesus, who are really the epitome of, of meekness in the Bible, neither of them are particularly unable. So why are they called meek? Of course, part of what makes this story so powerful is the willingness of Jesus 
to go along with what's happening, right? The deliberate choice to go along with what other people are doing. Now, the next section, of course, emphasizes what could happen if Jesus so chose. We think about what happens in John 18, and, and John is the only one, again, that records this. We think about this. This is, of course, he's talking about the angels, and I, and I do wonder if there was some sort of light or, or some sort of something that happened extra, because when John records this, the falling down. We read it just a minute ago. Jesus, knowing what would happen, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I'm he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing near him, or standing with them, rather. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I, I, I just, the detail, I wish we had more detail, John. What, what is going on here? What's happening? When Jesus says this, are they, are they worried he's going to smite them? I mean, they've seen him do some stuff, right? He's done some miracles up until this point. I'm not sure many of them are aware of the sort of the only destructive miracle. There's not been a lot of destructive miracles. But maybe they sort of have reasoned through, logic through. This guy can raise the dead. He can calm the storm. He can heal the sick. Uh, so maybe he's able to strike us blind. Maybe he can do it the other way. Maybe they don't think that at all. Maybe, of course, a lot of them, they're thinking he's a false prophet, right? Maybe they don't believe in the miracles. Why do they fall down? They draw back like he says this. And his over, I don't know if it's his overwhelming presence, if they're worried, if there's some sort of extra thing that's going on here, but they are clearly in awe. And if not in awe, maybe in fear. There's something extra happening. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you I'm he. If you seek me, let these men go. And I, Jesus is sort of, I don't know, mocking them. Maybe that's not the right word. What are you doing on the ground? I'm here. Just get me. I told you, I'm the guy. What, what are you doing down there? Sort of, I don't know. Again, it's hard to say because we don't have the inflection in the text. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. It's almost like a movie scene, right? The hero. He's, he's the hero of the story. He knows what he's capable of. But Jesus is not concerned about himself. Who is he concerned with? The people around him, right? Take me and let them go. And it's not like there's some overwhelming force here that Jesus can't overcome. But even in this moment, Jesus is not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his friends. Now, of course, he's also thinking about prophecy, but I think we can't separate Jesus' concern for his friends out of this story, right? Don't, don't deal with them. I'm the guy. I'm here. Take me. Let them go. Demonstrating once again submission, subservience, that he's willing to put others first. And we might ask, what happened? to the weeping, distressed, troubled man of a few hours ago, right? In the garden, weeping so that his sweat became like drops of blood in agony, in anguish. What happened to that guy? Of course, one of the things that stands out in this story is the contrast between control and submission. The word we might use, and we're going to use it again, restraint versus Peter, how Peter reacts. And of course, as Jesus is taken away, I love this picture. This, you can see Peter in the background. He's like going to get this guy. Peter, who is, 
I don't know, acting very in character. This is not new, right? This is not un unusual for Peter to be impulsive and take action. And again, this is, we didn't read it, but a couple chapters previously about when they were, or verses previously, they sort of had some swords together. Uh, when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, Simon Peter having a sword, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This servant's name was Malchus. Now, Peter gets a bad rap. But as you put these things together, I, I will note that several of them may have been inclined to fight, right? Several of them ask, hey, is this the time? Are we going to do this? And, and I think it's possible that this is the moment they've been waiting for, right? They've been thinking about the Messiah, this, this, this chosen one who's going to come. He's going to drive out the invaders. He's going to restore Israel. We're going to do it. And, and this is the moment. This is the time. They're going to arrest Jesus. Now we're going to fight back. This is the moment we've been waiting for. We're going to drive them all out. Of course... That's not what Jesus has in mind. And we think about what gets in the way of meekness a lot of times. What gets in the way of submission and humility to God's will is misunderstanding. Misunderstanding of what God expects of us. We think God wants us to act in a certain way, to do certain things, and we are misunderstanding. And most specifically, we misunderstand God's priority on the spiritual. We've seen it over and over again in the life of Jesus, that he's not primarily concerned with the physical world. He's not primarily concerned with earthly kingdoms, but spiritual matters. And when we confuse the two, physical priorities versus spiritual, we become like Peter, who has misunderstood the point. God didn't want him to take action physically. This is not what he's about. Again, meekness is not about inability. Peter seized the opportunity to fight in the way he was able and probably was thinking, okay, Jesus, I'm going to do this. You have great power. We're going to win. Of course, Jesus, Peter was convinced they would win. Jesus had done all this amazing stuff. But he didn't understand what God wanted. And so we return to this idea, the famous statement of Jesus. That we have the song, right? Jesus said to him, No more of this. Put your sword back in its place. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And remember what he said. Take me. Leave these others. He doesn't want to lose a one that has been given to him. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. I definitely think that if Peter keeps going, Jesus is saying, You keep doing this, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. Right? This is not the fight that you're going to win. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father? Of course, not all the gospel writers record this. And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And he touched his ear and healed him. Of course, Malchus's ear. Matthew goes into the most detail, giving us this famous song, 10,000 angels. Of course, you'll note, 10,000 is not the same number. You could say if the legion was different. But 10,000 just rolls off the tongues. If the song was... 12 legions of angels. It just doesn't work as well. But the point is the same, right? The point is, it doesn't really matter. The number's irrelevant. The specific number is irrelevant. He can call enough angels to destroy the world. Whatever number that needs to be. And quite frankly, one. One is sufficient. Think about the angel of death passing over Egypt. He doesn't need more than one. I can call 12 legions. The number is so big that it's comical. It's absurd. I could annihilate everyone if I wanted to. 
But Jesus doesn't just stop Peter. He goes above and beyond, right? Putting the conflict aside, but then goes above and beyond to actively bless one of the arresters, right? One of those who's going to get him, Malchus, one of the servants. Not only does he stop the fighting, he heals that guy. In the midst of being arrested, he's about to be put to death. Let me pause here and be a blessing to you. Do good by you. Even as you are ultimately going to do evil to me. There's an important implication in Jesus' question here. The question that he asked, do you not think I could ask? Jesus seems to think that God would indeed give him angels, if he asked for it. Implying that this would have been, and I'm using the word okay here, because the implication in the question is that God would be okay if Jesus wanted to back out. I could ask God, and he'll give me 12 legions. God wouldn't have denied it. Even though the father wanted Jesus to sacrifice himself, the implication seems to be the father's not going to force it on Jesus. Jesus certainly thinks that if he wants out, he can do so at a moment's notice. The father will support him in that choice. Jesus had already made this point in John, 8, in John 10, 18, right? No one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. And I think an important implication in this, not even the Father is going to take his life. Jesus is going to give it willingly. The Father's not going to force it on him. He has to choose it. And of course, that's the struggle in the garden, right? The struggle in the garden is not... God, why won't you let me not do this? Because God would. The struggle in the garden is, you want me to do this thing and I don't want to do it, but I have to choose it. I have to go through with it. I have to be the one to lay it down. And in some ways it would be easier for Jesus if God just said, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to make it so that you, can't, you don't have any choice. It would in, in some ways be easier for Jesus if God just took the choice from him. The difficulty and the meekness here is not the inability to affect an outcome, but the self-control to show restraint. To choose not to. Jesus provides two considerations as we think about emulating him. Two things that should trump the desire of self and require submission. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has for me, right? This is what he's praying in the garden. There are tasks God has for us that might require us to sacrifice some rights and privileges. Sacrifice power. Sacrifice ability. I have the ability to affect certain outcomes in my life, to achieve certain things, but there might be things that God wants me to do that require me to sacrifice those choices. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Of course, Jesus thinking about prophecy, but there's a broader principle for us. Do we, by exerting our will on the world, leave scripture unfulfilled in our lives? Not prophecy. We're not talking about prophecy for us. But scripture nonetheless, the commands and the will of God being unfulfilled in my life, not because I'm unable to do what I want, but because I am able and I am able to do what I want and affect outcomes that I want. And I'm choosing my own desires rather than God's. 
Meekness requires often that we undergo the emotional process of submission. As we grieve the hardships to come, right? This is the first part of the story. The reason we have the first part of the story is that's what enables Jesus to have the second part. He went through the process, the emotional process, preparing himself mentally to let go of what he wanted and put others first, put his disciples first and ultimately put us first. And I, I don't know, it's hard to know. We think about the omniscience of God, the omniscience of Jesus. I don't, I, it's hard to know exactly how much Jesus has in his mind at this point. Of course, the Father, as the Father is watching this all play out, you were in his mind. He's omniscient. You, specifically you, were in his mind at this moment. Now, I don't know about Jesus. It's hard to know in Jesus' mind. But certainly the Father's, as he is allowing Jesus to go to the slaughter for you. And what Jesus is asked to do to let go of what he is able to do, annihilate the world, to let go of what he's capable of, asking for help, for your sake. The whole point of the garden was to give him the strength to do so. To undergo the emotional grieving process. To let go of what he wanted for the benefit of others. And might I suggest in our own lives, as we're preparing to make choices, we're preparing to do God's will, to go through the process of the garden. We're not going to have the same thing exactly, but to go through the process of letting go is painful. To go through the process of submitting to God's will is hard. But if we are prepared ahead of time, we go through that process, then when the moment comes, the moment of decision, am I going to do what God wants or what I want? I've already made that decision. I made that decision when I let go in prayer, in earnestness, in devotion to God. Philippians 2, 3 through 7, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. This is meekness. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. His whole existence from beginning to end embodies meekness. And it should be noted, not just matters of absolute right and wrong, but the forsaking of privileges and rights. We can say it plainly, right? It was good and fair for Jesus to be equal with God. That was not a sin. Jesus is not giving up something sinful. It's right for him to be in the form of God, to be equal with the Father. He let go of that for the sake of others, for the sake of us. And so we conclude our story. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers and the temple elders who had come out against him and to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Then all the disciples left him and fled. At the end of the day, true submission to God's will comes not when we're forced to obey, but when we choose to obey. Jesus was always in total control. That's the point, right? I was with you day after day in the temple. You didn't capture me then because it wasn't time. 
It's not your hour. It wasn't your hour. Then now is your hour. And they think, oh man, we finally conquered. We finally did it. We finally got Jesus. But in this statement, Jesus is saying, you're not winning. This is the hour that's been given to you. This is the hour that you have temporarily. You think you've won, but you haven't. And even though it seemed like darkness was triumphing, Jesus knew that this would work out for the ultimate good, as we know, right? He did this for us. Of course, the last verse there. All the disciples left him and fled. I'm worried that that's us. Because it's hard to let go of what we want. And it's hard to serve God sometimes. And it's difficult and it's painful and it's sometimes anguishing. To do what God wants in the face of what we want and what the world wants. And I'm worried that sometimes we flee. We abandon Jesus. We abandon our friend. Now fortunately for them, there was forgiveness. There was repentance. Jesus returns to them, triumphant in the grave, after the grave, of course. That's ultimately what he offers to us. And I'm skipping ahead here. Ultimately what he offers to us. He knows there's times when you run away. He knows that. He's still willing to forgive if we return. Meekness, submission to God's will, choosing not because I have to, but because I'm choosing to, not when I am enable or incapable of doing what I want, but when I have the power to enact my will, choosing instead to enact God's will. It's a process. It takes time. We stumble, we fall. Sometimes we do it intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Sometimes we're like these disciples who fled, but I hope that we will be more often as we grow as Christians like Jesus, who stared submission in the face, grieved and troubled, and chose nonetheless, thy will, not mine, be done.